the end of the first round was some of the most fun I've ever had watching golf. Rom, McElroy, a bunch of guys were just getting absolutely embarrassed by the bunkers. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. Hello, welcome back to another Fire Drill podcast. It is Open Championship Sunday. Michael Bamberger is at Royal Liverpool. I'm in Carmel, California. Brian Harmon is playing such beautiful golf. He's in such total control of this tournament and his golf ball. We decided to start this podcast on the back nine just to get it over with because there is no scenario in which our short king is not going to win this Open. So we're rolling the dice here. We'll, we'll what, what do you call it? The team. <laughs> short king. It's been, you know, there's been a lot of jokes about he's play, he's under the wind, you know, he, um, he has more time to adjust because it takes longer for the rain to hit him. Like there's, we, we can make all these, all these, all these mediocre jokes about Brian Harmon. But the fact remains that in sports, power, size are huge advantages. And it's always been kind of a, this mystery where he was a dominant junior player. He's not had this he's had a nice career on the PGA tour, but he's never had the kind of success that people thought he might. You can imagine that when he, when he started playing against guys who were, you know, eight inches taller and could hit the ball a lot farther, there was an adjustment, but whatever, he's finally the player we always expect him to be. What a performance by Brian Harmon. What would you say about the guy across four days here at the Open? Why do we talk about Brian Harmon's height and not Rory McIlroy's? Because he towers over Rory McIlroy. He's got two inches on Rory McIlroy, I would say. (laughs) Rory, who claims to be 5'9", no way. Um, well, it's because Rory, Rory hits the ball nine. so far. Alan, if Rory's 5'9", Alan Iverson is 6'3". <laughs> exactly. Well, because it, it, the, the way Rory swings the club, it, it hasn't affected his, his – he's still a power player, so it, it's not really relevant. Harmon is much more of a finesse and a control player, and it seems like you know being diminutive is, has perhaps um, you know held him back on some level because – you watch him putt here. You watch the control he has of his irons. We, we know he's this tenacious competitor. Um, I guess it's just trying to explain why he hasn't won more because it seems like the rest of his game is so incredibly strong. But I liked his answer when people asked, why haven't you, why haven't you won more? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> it's, 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 it is kind of a mystery. J- just to go back to Brian Harmon, the golfer, not just because they're both left-handed, but that is part of it. He is a little bit like Phil, where he's got a really rhythmic. Phil is so underrated, it's a joke um, for his golf. Phil's got a big, <laughs> rhythmic, long swing with a big turn. Boom. And and this Brian Harmon really does the same thing without as much boom. But he's got a big, long, rhythmic swing. It's beautiful to watch. Fantastic short game. And... Uh, and it shows you, I think, the fact that he's got a commanding lead here as he makes the turn on the back nine on Open Championship Sunday is really a testament to both, of course, his skill, first and foremost, but also the greatness of Link's golf, that it is an equalizer because length is not so important. The very brilliant uh, uh, Nick Price said it years ago. It only needed to be said once, and it was so true. If you want to tiger-proof the courses, make them shorter, 
And that's sort of what the open championship uh, shows, especially under under these uh, these conditions. You know, we had a um, we had a text volley yesterday, and you were talking about how much you've enjoyed this week. And it's one of the fun things about the open rota is just enough time passes between venues. You, you sort of have to be reminded, and they can kind of blend together with the pot bunkers and the little towns. And what did you enjoy most about about Hoy Lake? And about Liverpool as as a host city, you you, you were here in 06 and fourteen, weren't you? Alan? Yeah, but you missed yes. uh, you missed sixty seven, I think. <laughs> I did miss sixty seven. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did talk to a friend who was here for for all three. This course is wildly underrated. Um, it's not as visually beautiful as Burkdale, but it's very similar to Burkdale, the way the holes are just sort of fitted right in there. Burkdale is a more dramatic piece of land. This is not, but it really truly is one good hole after another until you get to 17. We'll talk about that later. Um, and, uh, it's weird that we get here so seldom, you know, uh, once in the Tiger, once in the Rory, or once in the Brian Harmon era. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so, you know, the first joy for me, as you know well, is just to be here to escape the American summer for a week, uh, to see this primitive form of golf that we both love. Uh, there was a story in the New York Times today about whether uh, Royal Perthcall would ever get a uh, an open. Uh, oh, that's Wales. cute. Wales has never had an open. The Prince of Wales versus the Prince of Wales. Wales has never had an open. So it's a terrific story about Alan Blinder and... Uh, uh, so Christine, my wife, sent it to me, and I wrote back and yeah, Shipnick and I have played there. Well, we've played a lot of places. They're all terrific, and there's, except for the infrastructure part, almost all of them could handle an open because it's not so dependent uh, on land. But this, the fact that we come here so seldom, we the RNA uh, tells you how much good golf there really is here. It's been interesting, you know, monitoring the, the the golf fans on Twitter. There's been some kvetching that it's not an exciting venue. Uh, I mean, it is a sort of flattish piece of ground, um, but I, especially the back nine, that you've got those really tough par fours and 14 and 16. You've got the closing par fives. Uh, and 17, I, I want to hear your thoughts. It's fun to watch on TV just because there's such a pucker factor and you can tell the players have a bit of fear and whether it's crossed the line into being too small a target, whatever. Um, and it's certainly embarrassed Matt Fitzpatrick and some others in a way that seemed a little disproportionate to, uh, the miss. Uh, it's, it's made for great TV. What, what, what's your take on, on 17, you know, standing out there yeah. watching players play it? it, it- the joke that's been going around is that the members quit at 16, but I think they actually that's true. The members quit at 15, so right near the clubhouse. And knowing how they play golf over here, that means another 15 to follow. So a pleasant 30-hole golf day, which is, you know, <laughs> four hours and 45 minutes, you know, like play at the proper pace, maybe five. Um, I think 17 really doesn't fit in with this golf course. Every golf course has its own personality. If you think a dog can have a personality, which is kind of strange, although everybody with myself thinks it's true, certainly a golf course can have a personality too. The personality in this golf course is not flashy, and then uh, and everything fits. And then you get to 17, and it's super flashy. It 
doesn't fit, it sticks out like a sword of bomb. Uh, for those who haven't had a chance to see it, it's a, uh, the shoe chairs are fine, but it's totally blocked by grandstands and, and wind screens, so the players can't really feel the wind. And then you play, uh, you play a 130 yard uphill into the wind shot with a, like a clipped eight iron, maybe a full nine iron. But it's basically the 17th hole of TPC Sawgrass because either you pitch it on the green or you've got some wickedly unplayable, uh, bunker shot, maybe, maybe a pitch shot. If you get a good lie, fine. If you don't, you're making four, five, six, or, or more because uh, that uh, it's so slow, it's so severe that if it's not super precise. It rolls off uh, into oblivion, and you play another shot. You know, I guess to use the phrase people are using, it's definitely a tabletop green. There's very few of those here. Actually, I don't know if there's any tabletop greens. Maybe that's really kind of the point. And uh, and it's kind of like in an infinity pool. And, uh, you know, that's cool. Like 15 at Augusta, you know, that back part is sort of infinity pool. You can't see how bad it is over, over 15, but it's, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit in. And the biggest objection is the philosophical one trying to do something to juice it up for TV. That's not the RNA we know and love. They're the opposite of that. They're just like play the course. So they're not doing that here. So I think it's sort of out of character. Um, but. You know, it's a moment on an otherwise terrific golf course. So in conclusion, as we learned to say in junior high school, I would say it just sort of doesn't really fit with the whole thing. But, Alan, I'm here. I've been watching it live and in person. You're doing what the RNA knows millions of people across the world is doing it, watching on TV. How's it playing to you on TV, which is kind of its wrong intention, but it is its intention. I think it's fun because you don't um – you don't have a sense of the shift in the terrain or the feeling of the course. All of a sudden, they're just on this really terrifying little hole, and you can feel the player's discomfort, and there's been some some great crack up. So I, I think it's worked from a TV standpoint. I hear what you're saying, but yeah, we're having a different experience. But this also gets to you, Michael, as the poet of the Lynxland. I'm really curious your take on what the RNA did after Thursday with the bunkers, because the end of the first round – was some of the most fun I've ever had watching golf. You had Rom, McElroy, um, a bunch of guys were just getting absolutely embarrassed by the bunkers. Probably, again, you know, you're hitting 250 yard shots into a small target. You miss by a few yards and now you're fighting for bogey. It, it, the punishment was probably too severe, but as, as someone who enjoys watching the best players suffer, it was wildly entertaining. And it did, as you said, these courses are, they're too short for these guys. We know that. I mean, any golf course on planet earth is too short for the pros at this point. And something that like Hoy Lake is way too short. So I thought it was fun because it added real stress where if you knew you went in the bunkers, you weren't going to drop a quarter of a shot or half a shot. You're going to drop a shot and maybe two. And it made the targets that much more precise and it added danger, which is so often missing in championship golf now where the guys are hitting short irons into holes that are supposed to play really long. So I loved it, but the players didn't like it. The RNA capitulated. They, they reshaped the sand. So the balls went roll up against the face and um, that the, the championship just carried on. But what was your take on, on that decision that mid, midway, you know, midstream in the tournament? But let's not forget what the great man did in 2006. I speak not of Hogan or Big Jack, but Tiger, his own self, 
did not hit. Tell me if this is correct, Alan. This is my memory. I don't think he was in a single trap the whole week. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, in definitely in uh, St. Andrews in 2000, he didn't hit a single trap. I'm not as sure about Hoylake, but whatever it was, this entire game plan was built on not going in the bunkers, he and didn't. it worked. I, I covered it, and I'm, I, I, I'm surprised it hasn't come up that much this week, but I don't think he did. Uh, yeah. Did, was that true at the old course as well? I mean, that's actually hard to imagine doing that, uh, doing yeah. that twice. Uh, it's amazing. So that's the starting point. The architect is telling you, don't go in the trap. So don't go in the trap. That's number one. Number two, um, you could always get out in two shots because you could, no matter where you were, you could putt it to someplace more reasonably and they get your next shot out. So then the player is asked to go in there and assess the thing. Three, I think it shows uh, tremendous confidence on their RNA's part to admit that they overdid it. I don't know that I would have done it, but I think it's cool. I don't think they capitulated the players. I think they, in their confidence, I don't like this phrase, their high golf IQs, people are saying these days, but they did use their high golf IQs. And yeah, we kind of overdid it too much. Too many of these, too many of these shots are, are finishing right against the, uh, against the wall and leaving the players with nothing. So four, it shows you, it shows you how, you know, a golf course is a big, open, rugged playing field. But as the USGA has found out more than once, you get the pin placement wrong by three feet and it can be a day ruiner. And you get the, you get the raking of the trap wrong by just the margin. It can be, it can be even the top of the day, which, which you don't want. Uh, so I think, I think that part's uh, uh, quite interesting. But my biggest take, I don't think it's a complete fantasy, but it's a partial fantasy. Some of the best golf courses in the world, Belport during the pandemic, Pine Valley all the time, do not have breaks at all. If you go to Brar and Golspe, where the sheep are still in, in the in the bunkers, they trot it up, of course, with their with their hooves, if that's what sheep have. I think is that correct, Alan? Sheep have hooves. I think so, yeah. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Anyway. Uh that would be cool. Just smooth it out with your foot like you do at Pine Valley. And uh and it would make the make the trap even more of a trap. And uh really golf should go back to that. It's overly manicured. So so that's my that's my wee bit about that. So what's your wee bit about that? It's just it's just kind of weird. How do you feel about eliminating the rake? Oh, eliminating the rake? Um, sure, it, it definitely worked out during COVID. I mean, it, for the for the amateurs, you know, it's hard enough. Guys like us, it's hard to get out of a bunker sometimes. If you have a perfect life, it's sitting in a depression. It's really hard. So, uh, I think guys like us need it more than the pros. They they can handle bunkers with with such ease. Um, the the thing the thing about the RNA changing after the first round is what, what mystifies me is they had Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to watch the players play their practice rounds and watch how the ball was running into the bunkers and to talk to the players about it. It's kind of like couldn't they have gotten it right by Wednesday night? And once they decided and they had all that they had all that data of all those practice rounds and all the conversations and all the press conferences. Like I thought it was kind of weak sauce. Like this, you made a decision. You you wanted the bunkers to be more penal. Just stick to it, and it, it that would have been that would have been part of the character of the tournament. So um, I don't know. I didn't like him. I didn't like them making that decision when they made it. Maybe you followed this more closely than I. 
But was there a discussion, you know, as late as Wednesday that the traps were unfair and that the ball was rolling right up against the wall? Because I, I, oh, I, yeah. I don't remember that. And by the way, I don't even know why I'm using the word unfair because golf is unfair. Yes, I mean, I was reading, I was reading the pre-tournament transcripts, and players were talking about it extensively. It was, you know, it was a known thing on Tuesday. Like the ball was running up against the lips of the bunkers, and that it was a decision that that the RNA made by keeping the bunker floor totally flat. Where traditionally they'll they'll build a little sand up the face, brings the ball back. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely by by Monday people were commenting on it, and certainly by Tuesday and Wednesday. So um, it was. I don't know. It, I, I was surprised the RNA, the PG of America, yes, they'll always cave to the players. I thought those old boys might show more of a stiff upper lip, but, uh, you know, I get it. If, if it could have dominated the discourse, if you had all the contenders just making sevens after they missed a green by a couple yards, I mean, it, it, you don't want it to stray into fair and unfair is, I agree with your point. Golf is not inherently fair, but, um, there is overly penal and there is, there is, uh, it can be a fine line to where it becomes, um, somewhat absurd. So they, they took the safe way out. I wish they, I wish they'd stuck to their guns. I think it would have been a much more interesting tournament. And the people at home who are saying this has been boring and the course is nondescript, I think it would, it brings those hazards to life. I mean, they basically become like water hazards. Like you hit it in there. You're certainly going to drop a shot and, um, and maybe more, or you might get lucky and, and be able to play a beautiful shot. Like, I think it would have added to the, the texture of this tournament. I, I get all that, but I would go back to, to what I said earlier. I think it speaks very well for the RNA that they have enough confidence. I don't think they cave to the players. I just think, I think they, the RNA leadership decided this is not the tournament we, we want to have. Um, I think it's an area where I agree with that. definitely reasonable uh, people may, may, may differ. I mean, it's really actually, this discussion is actually part of the really, uh, intrinsic in that beauty of the game. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's all fun to talk about. There's no right answer. Um, so let, let's talk about the, the pursuers, you know, um, if you took Brian Harmon away, it was a hell of a leaderboard. You had Tommy Fleetwood, who of course was the emotional center of this tournament growing up 20 miles away. Um, John Rom with his electric 63 on Saturday to, um, to get himself in the conversation, as always, Rory was nibbling around on the on the board. Um, this, this kid Sepp Straka was really impressive. I mean, he's a big dude and he hits it far, but incredible putter. I mean, he seemed like he. I haven't looked at the final putting stats, but I feel like I, I saw him make more 15, 20 footers than almost anybody. Um, Jason Day, who's resurgent, and it's fun to see him um, in contention and. He was the opposite. I mean, every time they showed day, he was, he was hitting a beautiful putt that like burned the edge and you can see it on his face. Like how many, how many times am I going to singe the cup here? Um, I mean, he really, he really hit it well. So there, there was a, a lot of, you know, blue chip players, but, uh, they, they could never really make that run. It was like there would be spurts, you know, uh, today on Sunday, Rory comes out and birdies three in a row. Uh, early, early in the front nine, it's like here we go, and then it's just like they just flatline the pars. And uh, Rom was never able to generate any momentum. Cam Young, another one, you know, playing in that in that final group with his firepower, and got all those kicking birdies on Saturday. It felt like all right, Cam Young, this is 
He did it last year at St. Andrews. He's going to shoot another 64 and make this interesting, but nobody could ever close the gap. Uh, what was your takeaway from the guys who didn't win this Open? Well, it's like, it's you know, let's replace Brian Harmon saying with Tiger Woods' his name. Everybody, you know, wrote this, wrote this game story sooner or later. The game story where the winner was the guy who finished second. So, you know, if we take Brian Harmon out, <laughs> yeah. he had a great, great tournament. And by the way, wonderfully eclectic leaderboard of nationalities, especially, but also playing styles and personality styles. You know, uh, I think wherever golf is going, we're going to need these major championships and major championships. The Open does the best job of it. Uh, the others would likely do a better job of it. Gus does a pretty good job of it, of really gathering the best players in the world. Whatever you're going to try to define them from, this is a critical part, all over the world to gather one place. And golf is going to become more like tennis with their four Grand Slam events. I don't even know what tennis does the other 40-odd weeks a year. Uh, I actually don't know. I wouldn't even know where to look. I don't have a tennis channel. I don't follow. I don't care enough. I do care about the majors. But for good or for bad, golf is going to uh, turn in that direction. So when you rattled off of, you know, all those names from, uh, and then the young man from India, pardon me, Mr. Sharma. Uh, were you familiar with Mr. Sharma before this week? You probably were out this week. Uh, you play. Oh yeah. It's actually one of my, it's one of my great regrets is I, in, I think it was either 17 or 18. He had a, a terrific year. One of a couple big time tournaments around the world contended at, um, some WGCs and, you know, he was really young at that point. And I was, I wanted to go do a story in India because, you know, his dad's a colonel in the military and India is a place I've always been fascinated with. And I haven't gotten there yet. And I was really far down the road. I had I'd gotten my visa. I had booked a hotel, and I was dealing with the family. And then our bosses at Golf Magazine, you know, it's not a it's not an inexpensive trip. They kind of delayed it, and, and it was like, well, let's see if this kid has another good year, and then we'll definitely do it. But it's the opposite. Like there's so many times you got to get the guys while they're hot because you never know what nothing's given, and he hasn't really been a factor since then. It was just like after after Louis Wusthuizen won the Masters, uh, or not didn't win the Masters, won the Open. I wanted to go down to his farm in South Africa and ride around on tractors with him. And his agent said, "Oh, we love it, but you know he's has so many demands. Can we do it later?" I said, "There is no later. Like he's he just won the Open. You know this is the moment. And the next year, this was like in you know January or February. I said someone's going to win the Masters and someone's going to win all these other tournaments. And they're going to forget about Louis. It's like now or never." It's like, no, he's, have you seen his golf swing? He'll be around forever. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just telling you, I've, I've done this before. Like there's, there's a moment when a, when a guy is ascendant and there's all this energy and their story hasn't been told over and over. That's when you got have to go do the big features. And, um, in Louis's case, they didn't say yes. The, the, the Sharmers are delightful people. They were happy for me to come, but the trip got deferred for, for expense reasons. And, um, it's never happened. So yeah, I've, I've always been interested in him. Um, you know, comes from um this town in the north of india i believe that it's supposed to be incredibly beautiful and um you know his his dad is, is out there walking and it just seems like a neat story and i did a big piece on uh, jeev milka singh who's kind of the the patriarch of indian golf and you know he's been he's been shoebaker's uh mentor and and he's a wonderful guy too so yeah I, uh that's the one that's if you make a list of stories that got away like that's one i always wish i could have done it's, ne it's never too late but uh, he definitely has fallen off 
Um, but hopefully he'll, this is the, the beginning of, you know, he'll become ascendant and then there'll be another reason to make that trip over to India. Alan, everything you say reminds me of what Jim Harry used, or our editor Jim Harry at Sports Illustrated used to say, write it or read it. You got to write it. You got to write it while, while you can. It's funny when you made that miscue about East uh, Heisen uh, in his Masters wins. I had the same thing with Nick Price. In my mind, Nick Price is one of the Masters. It just seems like he has. I can see him at the dinner. Of course, he's not at the dinner. I can see him walking around with the coat. Of course, that has never happened. And who's yeah. is the same? I see him at the dinner, and I see him walking around with the coat. He doesn't have one. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's funny. Yeah, you got to write it. You got to write it while you, while you can. And Nick Price does have a piece of the course record at Augusta National with a 63. I mean, he had a few chances, but... Um, we don't have to go through all the people who didn't win this open, but let, let's just tip our cap in the direction of Roy McElroy, who's um, playing at an incredibly high level and he's going to have another top 10 in the majors. He's, you know, he finished the top 10 in all four in 2022. He's going to have three this year. He's, he's there. I mean, he's, he's one or two shots a day away from, from an epic run, but he's just not, he's not getting it done. What, what is your analysis of Rory this week? Well, yeah, with respect, I wouldn't say one or two shots a day. I would say one or two shots on Sunday. You know, the, that, yeah. that shot you need on the front side to really be there. And then that shot you need on the back nine, especially 14 to the house. You know, Tiger didn't really have, if you look at Tiger's 15 majors, he didn't have that many close ones, but he had a number of them. He had both those things. He had that shot in the front. Now, he was often playing in the last group. Not always, always, but often was. Um, you know, so that tells you not golf skill. We've talked about this before, but it probably does bear repeating. Not about golf skill. It's about, you know, the missing gear. Uh, and it's just, it's it's going to get harder, not easier. Uh, it just will. Uh, uh, I feel for him. But I think he had, but I don't feel for him like I feel like I feel for Tiger where he is in his life right now because I think Rory, from what do we know, we don't know anything, but by appearances, by his relationship with his parents and his wife, young child, seems daddy, you know, friends, place in the game, seems like he has a very contented life. Of course, there's always hunger for more in any world class athlete or any world class anybody. Um, so I don't think it's deep, deep pain, but there is something missing. Is that, is that too harsh on? No, I mean, I, I got into this, this minor dispute with a literalist on, on Twitter. I mean, Roy's last major was in 2014. His, his next chance to win one is in 2024. You can call it a decade since his last one, even though we can't say that officially until next July. But the point is, it is an astonishing amount of time. And the contentedness you, you talk about, it's interesting because, um, you know, he blew off the media a lot this week, canceled his pre-tournament press conference, didn't speak after Saturday. You know, Saturday he came out and was absolutely flushing the ball, could have birdied like the first five holes, picked off a couple. But, you know, it was um, – I saw a stat between Sunday at the old course and Saturday at Hoylake. Rory hit 33 out of 36 greens, almost perfect ball striking, and had five birdies. In other words, he had 28 birdie putts that didn't go in, <laughs> like across two rounds. 
like that will, that will corrode your will to live when you're hitting it that good. And, you know, he was, these were not 40 footers. He was missing 10, 11, 12, 15 footers, like the range that you got to make if you want to win one of these things. And, um, I don't think Rory's a bad putter, but it just seems like he's lost the ability to make them when he needs them, um, when it matters most. And, um, that's a differentiator. I mean, Brian Harmon is having an all time putting performance this week and his, I was looking at strokes gains from T to green. It's good, but it's on the green where it's been phenomenal. And that's just often what it takes. You're playing against 155 other great players, especially on greens like this that are a little slower and a little, little flatter and you can putt aggressively. Like you got to make the putts and Rory's just not doing that. Yeah. You got to make the putts. You got to find a way to get it done. I, I would say the old course last summer, what happened there, that will follow him around for the rest of his life as it follows around Tom Watson and others who had the chance, had it right there. I mean, Watson didn't really have it right there in his hands, uh, but it was his to maybe win when he stood on that 17th tee uh, when Seve won. Um, and uh, Rory the same. He, uh, he loves this game deeply, and, he, and anybody who loves this game deeply loves the Open. Anybody who loves the Open loves the Open at the old course. There's nothing greater than it. There's actually nothing greater than it in professional golf than the open at the old course. We had a fantastic week there a year ago. That was right there for now, you know, hats off to Cam Smith, where he did was phenomenal. But still, Rory had the chance, could have gotten it done, didn't get it done. And that's good. Just like Jordan Smith, you know, hitting in the uh hitting in the in the lake on uh, uh on twelve at Augusta National, like in quotes the creek. Uh, <laughs> um, you know. It's a moment in time where you had the chance and it's coming on now with Jordan Spieth's benefit. Of course, he's got the coat forever. Uh, but let's talk about, you know, when you say it'll, it'll be a year come next July. Well, that presumes he won't win next year's Masters. I know. I know. Um, Everybody who cares about golf and likes Rory would love to see him win a Masters and complete the career Grand Slam. Um, but... This whole of 2023, going back to July of 2022, and then eight years before that, it's going to make winning the Masters even harder, even though in theory the Masters is the easiest one to win. Now, you might talk about technical problems. As you've said, he's he's looked like a great, great putter at times in his career. I, I guess maybe he hasn't been. Uh, but he's going to have two things going on at Augusta. Very, very difficult putts to greens to putt and read on Sunday, especially, and then the get it done factor. Um, who knows where his, where his career will go here? On some level, he has to feel it's kind of weird to say, talking about a multi, multi millionaire who seems to have it all. And on some level that I, I wouldn't even know how to articulate, there must be a deep, deep hurt inside him for the role that he's played for two years now in defending the PJ Tour um, amid the rise of live golf. Alan, you've, you've reported that whole story more than anybody. What, what would be your insight into what kind of – and I know you'd have to be reading tea leaves to some degree because Rory hasn't talked about it that much. But just to use this phrase, sacrificial lamb, what's, what's your reading into that phrase and where his head might be as a result? Not just his head, but where his golf might be as a result. Yeah, I think Rory is going to exhale, you know, as he steps off this golf course today and be like, this was probably the hardest year I've ever had in golf. The, you know, 
you could feel his energy at at the U.S. Open and here, like just the betrayal, the shock, the anger, the hurt um, of the way that he was basically used by Jay Monahan and his friend, his friend Jimmy Dunn, and and these other cold blooded you know, boardroom warriors. I mean, <clears throat> Rory's an idealist and he thought he was fighting for something larger than himself. And you bring in the money guys like a Dunn and a Hurley and these other guys, and they see it in much more cold blooded fashion. And, um, they, it's one of the all time, you know, pulling the rug out from, from somebody like, um, and I don't, I still think it's, he's trying to find his equilibrium. And I, I think it showed, um, both at the open and here where his, his golf is so good. He can, even with a broken heart and a, and a little subdued energy and, and a, a low grade anger, he can still go out there and contend, but um, you need a clear mind to win these things. And you need a, you need a, um, you need a, a, a focus that is unwavering. And I haven't seen that from Rory whatsoever. And um, so it's, um, it's interesting. He now has nine months to recharge for, for, um, Augusta. I would love for him to be selfish and just WD from some of these events. You know, he's, he goes hard around the FedEx Cup. Then he goes over and plays a bunch in Europe because he's trying to support that tour. And I, you know, we saw it this week in blowing off the press. Like it's sad because Rory's always been so open. And the reason why golf fans and golf writers and everybody loves him so much is he lets you in. He's not like Tiger. He's, He's very honest. He's very open. He's very raw and real. But maybe this is the beginning. And that suited him well as an ambassador and has made him a beloved figure. But it's also all the talking he's done is not backed up by, you know, the trophy case, right? So maybe maybe there'll be this shift where Rory's going to just be like, okay, these guys didn't support me. I'm going to support them a little less. And I'd like to see him reduce his schedule. I'd like to see him do less corporate work. And, and just recharge more and and downsize his golfing life and make it like Jack and Tiger did, where it's all about the majors and you know all the revenue streams Rory has from you know the Whoop deal where he got equity and golf pass and I mean just the money you can make on the golf course now. Like why go chase the race to Dubai? Who cares? It's not going to change his life. I mean, I presume he's got hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. What's another 10 or 12? Who cares? Like, and it consolidate his efforts around the tournaments that really matter and maybe not be stretched so thin. So the fact that he's, he's a little churlish with the press, it's not helpful for guys like us, but it might indicate that, that he's kind of building this cocoon around himself and maybe that's what he needs. And if it means that these next 10 years, Rory can, can, um, you know, achieve what, what he's capable of, then it's, I think it's a good trade because we all want to see him in full flight and we want to see him realize this awesome potential. And like, you know, Tiger realized the golf is enough. That's all I have to give is the golf. I don't have to really do any one-on-one interviews. I'll do the bare minimum. I will talk after every round. I won't say anything. I will show up, but I won't reveal the, you know, the well-guarded fortress of my inner self. And, um, I'll just do the, the required and I won't give you one more inch than that, but the transcendent golf was enough. That was his gift and to the rest of us. And I, I wouldn't be mad if Rory went down that same road, just give us the golf, you know? And, um, 
because he's given so much of himself already. But we'll see. It he may he may he may sleep this one off. And uh, the 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 converse to that is that you have to be who you are. And he's a naturally open, kind of gregarious guy. So if he tries to be Nick Faldo or he tries to be Ben Hogan or he tries to be Tiger Woods, it might not work. It might it might hurt him, you know. So I, I don't know. At this point, all we can do is psychoanalyze Rory from the couch because he's so freaking good at golf, but he can't win the tournaments that matter the most. It's all that we're left is to try and figure this out. That was almost Ogilvy-like in its ability to uh, – you could take what you just said, transcribe it, and put it in and, 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 and publish it. There's only one significant area where I would disagree. You say, you know, have him focus on the majors. I think, to me, it's obvious he's too focused on the majors. He can win tournaments that are not majors. So why can't he win majors? People generally win majors at the exact same pace at which they win, win non-majors. Uh, so clearly to me, it seems obvious to me that he's putting a sort of quote pressure on himself. There's an internal tension when it comes to playing major, you know, the four, the four majors and especially I would say the masters, but even last year's, I would say last year's open up the old course is very equivalent to, to the masters because it's such a special category, uh, uh, onto itself, um, so I would think the mental trick for him, and Tiger wouldn't relate to this. He can talk to Tiger until he's blue in the face, but Tiger would not be able to give him advice on this, is how to treat majors more like Bay Hills and even players' championships. Um, I think it's you know, almost impossible to do, but I think that would be, would be, yes, reduce the schedule, but figure out some kind of mental trick to do that, but easier said than done. Yeah, no, I actually agree with you. I, I, I mean, just reduces all the clutter in his life. So he's just sort of more refreshed and he's more, he's more rested and he's more golf hungry. But yeah, I would love to see him at, at next year's Masters fly in Wednesday at 8 p.m., go to T Bones, tie one on, show up 10 minutes for his Thursday tea time, don't hit a single ball or a single practice putt and just go out and freewheel it. Like, why not? He's tried everything else. I mean, because you remember at the Ryder Cup when he almost missed his tee time, he got the, the time zones wrong and he rocked up and he, he took a few practice swings and he ate like a banana and he went out and he thumped Keegan Bradley who'd been playing amazing golf. Like, Rory McIlroy is so good at golf. He doesn't need all this bullshit. Just, just, just rock up to the first tee, hung over and see what happens. Um, and... By the way, that was the day he met his future wife. Was was at that Ryder Cup? So she she arranged the phone. She she organized the car that got him there, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I agree with what you're it. saying. Like, switch up the preparation somehow. But that's um, but, uh, well said. Uh, so hard to do, but well said. Alan, what is your insight, if any, into how Jay Monahan's first week back at work went? <laughs> well. Um, of course, no, no. And he didn't, it was funny cause he didn't show his face at all. I mean, he's probably so tan from just like laying it on the beach and they're, they're trying to, Jay, you look like too well rested. Um, I mean, Ernie Els, he had some great quotes. Um, uh, welcome back, Jay. <laughs> like, you know, he, he, he basically said in my ear, he would have been, he would have been fired. We wouldn't have stood for this. And, you know, Xander Shoffley and Jordan Speed at the Scottish Open had some tough things to say. It was not a warm embrace for the commissioner upon his his return. So, um, 
It's it's fraught. I mean, well, there's always some kind of news break. We'll we'll see what's next. But um, yeah, I think he's he's Monahan's in a tough spot. I mean, he's really he's got a he's got a repairs relationships with the players, with the golf press, with the sponsors. Um, it, his title of CEO, you know, CEO of all of golf is um, a little tenuous. Like. You know, it's been this joke: who's going to last longer, Monahan or Norman? Well, all this stuff came out about Norman has been sacrificed at the altar, but I don't think Monahan's on firm footing either. So I, I would say they're pretty much neck and neck from their their odds of survival. Um, but before we go, let let's talk a little bit more about Brian Harmon. We got to give this guy his due. I mean, he's just um, in, in your reporting this week. Have you have you turned up in any nuggets you want to spoil on, by sharing them on this podcast? No, nothing that hasn't really been out there a little bit, but I, I do want to share this. Uh, our uh, our friend and uh, colleague Dylan Jachir wrote this uh, the other day. It came from a question that Dylan asked him. Uh, Brian Harmon said something that was spectacularly insightful that I've never really thought of before. A friend or someone that he knows said to him, tell me if you know this, Alan, if it's made the rounds enough, uh, engage yourself in activities where you lose track of time. You know, that he, it was worded much more artfully than that. Um, have you heard that ever in your life? Or did you hear that from Harmon this week? Yeah, I, I did see that quote that you're talking about. And he said, that's what happens to him when he practices. He just kind of loses track of time. And that, that's always a good sign. If, if you're 36 years old and you've, you've made $30 million and you've played in 300 plus tour events and you still have that love for it. It's great, and, and and you can apply it to anything. I, I can remember being at baseball games when I was really into baseball, where you're, and of course, baseball is famously not about the clock. Of course, it's a little bit more now, but you're just so lost in the game, especially if two pitchers are pitching well. Absolutely, almost completely lose track of time. Of course, Las Vegas wants you to do that. They don't give you any clocks in the casinos for that exact purpose. Um, as Christine and I, or my wife Christine and I, we go to movies and movie theaters. For that same thing, but it's so hard to do now because that cell phone, you don't know what's happening on the other end of the cell phone, but you go into the dark space and lose yourself in the movie, lose yourself in the baseball game, lose yourself in the practice, lose yourself in the round of golf. It was it was a beautiful insight that I never really thought of in just the way that he said it. So uh, I think Brian Harmon is a very bright person. I know people want to mock the hunting and blah, blah, blah. I'm not at all a hunter. I don't really get it. Um, I do think if you hunt the way he says he hunts, where, uh, yes, you're killing animals, but you're going to eat the animal. I, you know, I eat fish, so I'm not going to speak myself. Um, you can do it, you know, I'm, this I can get into. It's too much of a thing. But I just think that was a spectacular insight into his mind and his life, really. And I, you know, I'm always looking to try to learn something new. And when he said that, I learned something new. The one last thing I wanted you to talk about, Michael, was you've written about this, but it's such a great insight. Uh, last year's Open, when there was that celebration of champions and Lee Trevino was putting a show on on the driving range for Tiger and Jack and others. I know mm -hmm. Harmon was there watching and you chatted him up. W what did you take from that conversation? Because that's a very soulful moment. It was neat. Uh, and, and, and it's interesting. So it was two things at the same time. Uh, Lee Trevino and, and Brian Harmon were hitting balls side by side. You know, of course, Harmon's left and Trino's right. So Trino's looking right at him. Trino loves studying golf swings. And of course, because he's Lee Trevino, he's a genius. He can pick up on a lot of technical things 
and they started talking about rear foot position with Brian Harmon. So in that sense, it was technical. But when I talked to Harmon afterwards, I said, what'd you really get out of it? And he said, right there, he said that it was, it was really about, there was no track manager being in his day. And you can see how well he hits the ball today in his early 80s. It's not about track man. It's about feeling the golf swing. And he said, you know, I consider myself a field player. Here's the ultimate field player. You know, tremendous technical understanding of the golf swing. And I need to get away from the numbers and get more devoted again to just sort of feeling the way I've got a golf, around a golf course. No golf course, uh, no, no, as a group of golf courses, nothing like links golf to get you away from track man and just play the shot in front of you. With all the tricks at your disposal, including reading when, reading bounce, uh, reading your emotions and everything else. Uh, uh, so yeah, I, I have to think, I would like to think that that moment Trevino is helping here, uh, do what he's doing right now. Well, and now he will be linked with Lee Trevino forever as a guy who's won the open championship and, uh, Brian Harmon will be at the next celebration of champions. I mean, what a career upgrade, you know, for, uh, yeah. I saw a stat over the last two years. Um, he had 20 something top tens. I mean, the guy's been playing at a high level for a very long time. So in that regard, it's not a fluke. It is a surprise, but he clearly has the game and he's going to be one hell of a writer cupper. Uh, I mean, to play against someone who hardly ever yeah. misses a shot, makes every putt and is just has that grind. I mean, that's the, that's archetype of the dude you don't want to play against in, in match play. He's the first cousin of Justin Leonard, and no one looks at the third joke. So what a joke Justin Leonard's on third joke. And Justin Leonard was not a dominant player because he didn't have the length to be dominant, but he had all the tools and he had the head. And uh, you never really hear much about Justin Leonard anymore. But this guy's out of that same tradition. That's well said. All right. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure um, reading. It's been a pleasure reading all your stuff this week. Thanks for taking the time to pod. Uh, we'll have an off-camera conversation about the Twilight Golf you played because I do want to hear about that as well. And um, <laughs> um, anyway, start typing. And um, thank you, f- thank you for doing this. That was another Fire Drill podcast for Michael Bamberger from Hoylake. This is Alan Shipnuck. We'll be back in your year at some point soon. And that's the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. As my producer always likes me to say, that's the end. I bet big and I played to win Made a fortune when my ship came in I ran the table, never thought I could fall Then the winter time hit me like a cannonball And now I can't shake this losing streak Every road I take is a dead-end street I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out Trying not to think what I'm thinking about I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out Trying not to think what I'm thinking about Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it.
2025 QX80 coming this summer.